metal vocals that I don't normally like in a way that I I can kind of look past because mm. the arrangements in songs by the Faceless are like they're nuts. They're so yeah. crazy. <laughs> I thought that they were just like a darker sounding Meshuga. Well, Meshuga does this thing where they take repetitive um rhythms that add up to weird shit and then they find the long grooves in it kind of like tool does but like on a higher level compared to like the faceless where it's like more between the buried and me more prog rock hard Hmm. changes jumping into new sections little one-off bridges that don't really go anywhere um stuff like that yeah that's cool i'm actually used i mean I'm excited to the thing that I'm scared about, like some of those old bands like Cryptopsy is like I'm mm-hmm. I'm scared that I didn't do enough research at the time and it turns out they're actually a Nazi band. Uh, yeah. That's my biggest fear. But I don't know. I'm going to maybe I'll give them a chance. Well, that's like I was I had Bill Peel on um, Beep Beep Lettuce not too long ago to talk about his book on like finding the the possible revolutionary energy in black metal, like a famously deeply diseased right wing poisoned uh, strain of music. And I remember Zeal talking and about ardor. Yeah. <laughs> is my response to that. Yeah. And I, re- I remember talking about some bands that I liked in high school and I mentioned Iced Earth, which is not a black metal band, but he was like, oh, Iced Earth, that's a January 6th guy. He was a January 6th. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, exa- yeah, I, did I not remember. Know I saw the pictures of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jeez. So you yeah, do that- have to watch out. <laughs> I mean, yeah. power metal, I think, does uh, very much so run that same risk because of the fantasy element and mm-hmm. many right wing elements like living in that like my vision of the future is based on this science fiction or science fantasy thing that I like a lot. Which is why you want those bands to lean into how silly that concept mm-hmm. is, because that's the right way to approach that. You do like a three inches of blood thing where you just take none of it seriously at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, um, what was that uh, Lord of the Rings power metal band, like Blind Guardian? They oh, had yeah. such a good grasp on that because they both took the Tolkien canon seriously, like way too seriously <laughs> and then when they came up on stage they did a bunch of goofy little hobbit shit yeah and they had the robes <laughs> and they had the lutes and stuff and like it make it like a stage performance because when you come up on stage and you give off the energy like you really do believe you're a runic warrior from 300 <laughs> yeah. ad i want to punch you in the mouth <laughs> yeah that's uh what that's like uh fucking Cavellatech. they got like mm-hmm. lead singer there wears like a mask and does like weird mm-hmm. stuff i saw them live that was pretty cool and then there's mm-hmm. also uh a classic uh botanist where they actually oh, do yeah. dress in robes and mm-hmm. also play weird like instruments yeah and if you want to go even more old school like a band that i think did it pretty good was celtic frost um they have they had a lot of they were very innovative i have literally have no idea what their politics are because as far as i understand the politics of that band are have long hair wear frilly shirt which to me (laughs) that's great politics that's all i ever heard about it yeah (laughs) no not more like traditional power metal although if you want a, a pirate metal band running wild is really good <laughs> hmm i've mostly just been listening to 2023's best mastodon album which is mutoid mm. man's new album yes Mutants. hell yeah <laughs> oh although i also not a really band, checked that out yet mutoid man another one of those bands where i listen to the lyrics sometimes and i'm like is this boilerplate high school senior level social commentary or am i hearing tiny little right-wing dog whistles <laughs> <laughs> 
because there are some of those songs where I I have to wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel I feel that sometimes when I'm picking music, I actually listen to the song or I'll look up the lyrics. And I'm just like, you know what? This is just too vague. I just mm. feel like this could be something that I don't want it to be. I can't pick this. Well. For me, if it's all the way vague, if like anybody can read anything into it, that's fine. That's just going to happen. And if it's specific enough that you, it's going to be tough to misunderstand, that's also fine. But there's a weird middle area that's a little too productive for weirdos, for my taste. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Interesting. Well, there's your, uh, I guess we're doing music podcasts on this cold open. Hell yeah. (laughs) I'm a cultural commentator. Well, now that we're (laughs) sponsored by Monster Energy. That's right. I love to be sponsored by Monster Energy. I mean, I don't have the hoodie on right now, but I do also have a hoodie from them because um, uh, when when work says, here's a free thing, I always say, this is a disgrace, and then I take as much of it as I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> a legal disclaimer, we are not actually sponsored by Monster Energy. <laughs> no, we're not sponsored by anybody except you, the listener. So thank that- you so much for supporting the show, if you do. That's right. <laughs> Should I do the rest of the open? Your number one labor podcast. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we are 100% listener supported. So like I said, thank you so much if you support the show in any way. Hop in the Discord if you're not already in there. It's a wonderful place where you can find wonderful people and the reading group that is hosted on Tuesdays. Um, if you do want to support us, you could do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. Oh, right. I didn't give the link. That's good. And at patreon.com slash workstoppage. If you are a sponsor who doesn't have any stickers yet, we will get you some. I'll just message us on there and I'll walk over to the post office. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or in the YouTube comments for the new Cryptopsy song. Yeah, there we go. That's right. So uh, I know all our listeners, I'm sure, are very excited to get to the big story this week about the strike uh, by the UAW at the Big Three. But Wait, in, they're uh, striking cl- at the UAW? <laughs> Just kidding. But in classic work stoppage fashion, we are going to make you wait until the end of the episode for that. That's right. Because there's uh, you know a lot of other labor news that happened this week that's also very important, and we don't want it to get completely drowned out. So Yeah, so uh, simmer down, okay? <laughs> <laughs> just just take a chill pill class. <laughs> you have to have the whole meal, not mm-hmm. just dessert. <laughs> yep. And uh, so this this podcast brought to you by three folks in their mid-30s, very quickly approaching parental energy. Hey, I'm going to be an aunt in either plus one or minus one hours. So Yeah. I stopped right. counting how many kids my friends have because they don't appreciate it when I do that. but anyway so for our first story this week uh we just wanted to follow up because this thursday was a huge day for labor not just because of launching the uaw strike but it was also the most recent big day of action by starbucks workers united bringing in supporters from outside the union to come help and support workers at non-union stores who may be thinking about unionizing but may be intimidated by the anti-union tactics from the company. And so uh, this was 
their biggest day yet. I, be- I believe they had like 1,700 folks show up. Uh, I-, I didn't write down the number that I saw, so I apologize if that's wrong. <laughs> but that was, I believe, the number I saw of like 1,700 folks at, at hundreds of stores uh, across the country. And, you know, you had workers from all walks of life, uh, folks from other unions show out. I saw a bunch of folks, you know, just SEIU members showing out to support workers at stores. And to really to, to emphasize to workers at Starbucks around the country that their community is with them. And that, like, even if their managers may be put, throwing out all this, you know, scare talk about the union, that, like, the rest of the community will absolutely back them up. And I think that this is a really great tactic. And I also just want, you know, I want to just shout out some of the folks, some of the listeners in the discord who were posting, you know, pictures where they went out to their local uh, days of action to support their local Starbucks and just want to, you know, that's that, that rules. And we highly encourage folks to do that. And in addition to that, though, in addition to the, you know, basically the everybody come out and and show your support for your local workers, there's also a new initiative that was launched on this day of action, specifically targeting Starbucks on uh, university campuses. So following the example of students at Cornell, students at 11 other colleges on Thursday announced drives to remove Starbucks from their campus as well in response to the company's attacks on workers. As reported by Teen Vogue, students at 11 colleges, including the University of Chicago, the University of Washington, and the University of Arizona, launched the campaigns on Thursday, handing out leaflets and putting up billboards saying things like, students prefer our coffee union brood and we support starbucks baristas and demand an end to starbucks union busting hell yeah i love seeing all of these actions and solidarity with these workers being uh oppressed by this fucking terrible company but i think we should move to our next story because last week we discussed the fight by workers in ontario to recover stolen wages from their bakery live freely foods who abruptly closed their doors in august Now, with the assistance of the Najwan Support Network and the local community, the Mississauga business uh, has been forced to start actually paying the workers back. On Saturday, September 9th, the NSN announced on Twitter that through public pressure, they've been able to help force the former employer to pay back $50,000 in stolen wages, which is about a third of the total owed. After a week of protest outside the bakery, the workers supported by the NSN hand-delivered a uh, petition or letters from uh, to the homes of f- the two former company directors, directly to the homes, so we love house calls, uh, demanding their unpaid wages. One director actually immediately agreed to meet with the workers. Uh, during the meeting, the director and the bankruptcy trustee state that, uh, you know, through the standard legal bankruptcy process alone, the workers would not receive their stolen wages due to the way that the law prioritizes creditors, banks, uh, and the like over the workers. Therefore, the workers and the community have resolved to continue to fight to win back all of the stolen wages. Also, I... A point of order a little bit, like a little bit of a technical objection, but who is a bigger creditor <laughs> to the business than the fucking people making the profit? You're not going to hear argument from me. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that when you re- like learn about how bankruptcy law works, it's just like, 
okay, so uh, you're ha- you can't pay off all your debts, and so we have to put a priority list together for who we're going to like liquidate your assets and pay off first. And every time, banks are the number one yeah. <laughs> thing. And it's like, hmm, I wonder who wrote these laws. Was it the banks? Uh, answer, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I had my druthers, if you declared bankruptcy and you owed back wages to the employees, you would just have to give them the company. Yeah. yeah. The whole thing. And, 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 yeah, and I mean, that's... Uh, I mean, honestly, that's actually tied into, uh, you know, one of the demands that the UAW workers are making, mm-hmm. you know, to have control over uh, attempts by the companies to close their businesses. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's one of those things where I know when we were talking about this last week that one of the differences in Canadian law is that I believe in Canadian bankruptcy law, and I apologize if I screw this up, but this was, I believe they actually do have a provision where the company directors themselves are responsible for six months of the workers' back wages if they had mm. not been paid, which I, which in the U.S., I don't think there's any such requirement. But it seems like actually trying to pry that money out of directors and stuff in Canada, even though, like, it, legally they're on the hook for it, is a challenge. And so the, you know, the... the Workers and the network have been trying this more personal approach, which I think is is really cool, especially how effective it's already been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really rocks that they're able to put this pressure on. It sucks that they have to. But on Friday, September 8th, after meeting with the workers, one director provided a payment of the $50,000 in stolen wages and agreed to work on a plan to get the rest in, in the coming weeks. But the workers and their supporters in the community say that, you know, like many other really good uh, actions, they uh, are not really going to consider this a full a victory until it is a full victory and will continue to protest until all of the workers have been made whole. And I mean, this is just another example of the power that workers can wield if they aren't trapped within the confines of the, quote, proper channels in the capitalist legal system, literally speaking truth to power, showing up at the motherfucker's house and being like, pay me. <laughs> well, points and, at and hand w- yeah <laughs> what's what's really intriguing about this to me is that it's not just that they have to operate outside of the confines of what's typically considered the proper channels it's that they have to operate outside outside those confines to get the proper channels functioning in the fucking first place yeah 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 no i mean it exactly it's 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 in the long long line of examples you know that we've talked about about how uh, you know, it's great to pass labor laws and labor reforms, but as long as we're under capitalism, the only way those laws are ever going to get enforced is through direct worker action. And this mm-hmm. is just another case of that, even when it's not specifically labor law, but it's more like the intersection of labor and bankruptcy law. Right. And then so we've just got a real quick hit story, just a headline we wanted to let folks know about real quick. Uh, you know, uh, the ALU, there hasn't been a whole lot of, of new elections as the workers there have really been focused on fighting to try and get the company to come to the table for a first contract at JFK 8. Uh, and, you know, there was also some some roadblocks after a, a few lost elections last year in, in, in Staten Island and upstate New York. But this week, the ALU has launched their most recent new union election. Chris Smalls announced on social media that the ALU has filed for an election at the ONT8 warehouse in Moreno Valley, California. Uh, there, Folks may remember that there was previously an organizing effort there, but it unfortunately hit a wall due to the union-busting campaign by Amazon. But now workers have regrouped and have 
filed again for a union petition. So, you know, this is just the early phases of the campaign. We'll, we'll continue to cover this as things evolve, but just wanted to let folks know that the ALU is once again launching new organizing drives. And since Amazon is such a vital place to be organized, uh, you know, any organizing drive there is really crucial for the upsurge that the labor movement is currently seeing. Yeah, just because we haven't seen the same kind of traction that we saw right at the beginning of ALU organizing kind of come around in a repeat, it's important to not take your eye off the ball there because Amazon is just, I mean, whatever organizing activities happen there, it's going to continue to be one of the biggest points of interest probably for the next decade at least. It's also important to remember that Chris Smalls was out there in the tent, you know, with other organizers for a very long time, Mm -hmm. you know, before the... uh, the JFK 8 facility even got their election. Yeah. Uh, I mean, also kind of following up on another story that we've done a few weeks ago, we were discussing the announcement of the uh, video effects workers at Marvel, one of the country's biggest studios uh, who are unionizing with IATSE. This week, the results came back and the the election turned out to be entirely a formality as the workers unanimously voted in favor of unionizing. You love to see it, folks. Yeah, the union's victory was expected, but this is still great news and a big win for workers across the VXF, the the video effects craft. Video effects workers at Walt Disney Pictures are also in the process of voting, and we can expect their victory to be the next one in the in a couple weeks. Uh, as Ayatsi said on Twitter, "quote We anticipate this is the first of many organizing victories within VFX." End quote. Hell yeah. I mean, and it's so important that we see that in these industries within entertainment that had previously been kind of sidelined and kept out of organizing on technicalities or because they're a new type of industry or whatever. And another group of uh, entertainment workers that we've seen organizing uh, who have previously been sidelined and also voted unanimously are the writers for the MTV clip show Ridiculousness, which is apparently MTV's number one product that they produce and also something I had not heard about until the... uh, <laughs> Uh, dispute happening at the show Same. which is which is apparently billed as quote unquote unscripted but they still have a writing staff so mm-hmm. you tell me what those people are doing for work uh and th- those writers did make a bold step towards undermining the idea that the show is completely unscripted when they voted unanimously to unionize so studios have previously leaned heavily on unscripted reality style content this year while refusing to pay writers and actors living wages attempting to continue to put out content during the strikes but this move could be a sign that even workers on these supposedly strike-proof shows have recognized that the benefits and protections of a union are something every worker needs no matter where they work and honestly i would argue that writers on weird cobbled together shows like ridiculousness probably need the protections more than anybody because their job responsibilities and pay and benefits are probably going to be tossed to the wind with a way more cavalier attitude than with workers who have an established you know presence in the labor in the labor space especially when the bosses think they've already won in that field you know Mm -hmm. they they basically are just like hey this is quote-unquote unscripted so therefore we can't be struck fuck you Well, and how many of our stories that we've just talked about on this episode so far in like 20 minutes or whatever have been in industries that people previously thought were strike proof, like fucking Starbucks, fucking Amazon, fucking VFX workers. Like it's they're coming out pretty hot and fast with these um, with these organizing movements. Yeah. And so, you know, it's been awesome to see also just this organizing in the midst of the ongoing WGA and SAG after strikes, which do continue to go on strong. Although, unfortunately, we have to report this week that there are a few high-profile members 
who have not chosen to continue the fight uh, to their own great detriment. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to make Bill Maher eat his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, last week we did report on a, there was a bit of a break in the solidarity amongst the, the although I hate to use this word for them, that for the Hollywood bosses when AMC Studios broke ranks from the rest of the AMPTP and agreed to terms with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA in order to continue production on some of their shows. Unfortunately, we now have a defection the other way, as this week Drew Barrymore very publicly announced her intention to cross the WGA picket line and restart her show. Well, you know, she made the announcement on the decision to restart her show without any of its writing staff, uh, attempting to simultaneously claim that she was not crossing the picket line, saying, quote, The Drew Barrymore show is produced under the network television code, which is a separate contract and is not struck. It is permissible work, and Drew's role as host does not violate the current strike rules, end quote. Now, the problem with that statement is it's very, very specifically worded, which is that Drew Barrymore herself showing up and doing a show by herself mm -hmm. would not necessarily break SAG-AFTRA's strike rules. But returning a talk show that has writers and a writing staff to the production just without those striking writers, you know, that absolutely is crossing the WGA picket line. Yeah, It well, absolutely it, is scabbing against them, and there's really no gray area there. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because it, the, the roles in a thing like a talk show, which I guess is presumably what this is, again, I have never heard of the Drew Barrymore show. <laughs> Me neither. Uh, <laughs> but like the, what, what happens on this kind of thing is kind of arguable, and I, I mean, I see the gray area where it's like, oh, it's basically like a YouTube channel, but on TV. But like if that was the case then why were there ever writers there in the first place? So even if you're bringing in nobody to scab, you're just bringing in the presence of the host who's not technically bound to the rules, and that's scabbing for the presence of the writers, that's still fucking scabbing. You're still replacing them, and you're still doing the work without them, which is scab work. So, you know, I don't, yeah. care, if it, I don't care if it's what the law says. It's, it's how it is. And... And to be clear, it's not just us saying this. The WGA mm -hmm. itself made it very clear on social media, saying, quote, The Drew Barrymore Show is a WGA-covered, struck show that is planning to return without its writers. The Guild has and will continue to picket struck shows that are in production during the strike. Any writing on The Drew Barrymore Show is in violation of WGA strike rules, end quote. So, no, no gray areas, no confusion there. This is very obviously crossing the picket line. Mm -hmm. and, and, it, and I think this is an important case study because, you know, uh, strike breaking doesn't always look like David Zaslav and Bob Iger cruelly killing a bunch of trees in order to deny shade to picketing workers. That's something where it's very easy to point out, like, look at the cruel, evil bosses, look how evil they're being. Uh, sometimes, you know, Strike breaking looks like this. It looks like someone apologetically claiming to be on your side and then crossing the picket line anyways for their own personal interest. And to underline the fact that despite their statement, the Drew Barrymore show's executive team, which I don't know how far that extends beyond her, like knows very well that they're crossing the picket line. Uh, on Monday, September 11th, as the show resumed production, the WGA established a picket line outside the New York City show. And the show's three WGA writers on the picket line told the Hollywood Reporter that they only found out the show was resuming without writers by seeing a ticket giveaway online. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's like, 
oh no, we're not scabbing. We just didn't tell any of the writers that we were coming back and without them. Yeah, definitely <laughs> nothing shady happening here. Yeah. And so Chelsea White, who's one of the show's, I guess, writers normally when they're not uh, you know, crossing the picket line, told reporters, quote, I think in general, this is obviously bigger than us three writers on the Drew Barrymore show. It is a bummer to hear that the show is going back because it sends a message that union writers are not valuable. And it goes directly against what the WGA, SAG-AFTRA, all the unions are trying to band together to stand up against the greedy studios, end quote. I also just want to point out, like, how can a show even exist without writing? I mean, she has to literally, like, set up the show and write the sequence. It's almost like she's saying, now, this is like the Eric Andre show, but actually unscripted or something like that, mm-hmm. where it's just, like, totally random shit happening at all times. We're just going off the cuff. And I mean, obviously, the Eric Andre We're bringing Andres- back whose line is it anyway, yeah. folks. Yeah. I-, I would love to see a 15-minute clip of Drew Barrymore trying to just wing a show, just riffing coming up with her own material because like to me there wouldn't be any more concrete evidence in the world that even a a talk show i've never heard of needs professional writers yeah are are there interviews are there questions the questions got to be written (laughs) Mm -hmm. well yeah yeah because it's like it's your show's not all improv (laughs) so like yeah, it's ridiculous. And and the thing is, you know, while these writers were picketing, they informed members of the public about the strike as they were going in to, to go to the taping. And they handed out WGA buttons to those planning to attend. And two people who didn't know the show was struck took the buttons and threw them on. They're like, oh, hey, I, we, we support the writers. We'll wear these. It's great. Uh, didn't quite, I don't think they quite understood the whole setup. But they went in to go attend the screening while wearing the buttons. And they were forced to leave by show crew members because they were wearing the pro WGA buttons. Now, a spokesperson for the show (laughs) provided a statement. This is such a ludicrous bullshit excuse. They provided a statement to the Hollywood Reporter claiming the two were removed due to, quote, heightened security, end quote. Uh, Why would you need heightened security? (laughs) No one's threatening your show with violence or anything like that. Well, and how is a WGA button a threat to your security? Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Don't, like, if you're going to lie to my face, at least come up with a good one. Like, mm-hmm. that's just insulting. I mean, the, and, 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 for, and ultimately, I think that's the thing. Like, to your point, Lena, it's like the whole incident makes it just so obvious. And it's like, Drew Barrymore and her executive staff know exactly what they're doing. They know they're crossing the picket line and betraying the entire profession of writing. They just put out that statement claiming they weren't as a PR tactic. And so the two audience members who were kicked out for wearing WGA buttons then joined the picket line outside, which that rocks. Uh, These people are now cool. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so Cassidy Carter, one of the two who was kicked out, said, quote, it really has changed my perspective on her, referring to Drew Barrymore and the show in general. I've been completely alarmed and disheartened by the whole process, end quote. Yeah, I mean, it is actually sometimes hard for union news and and like that sort of consciousness to reach a lot of people. And I'm really glad that that's really on the rise. But I honestly am not surprised that people are like, I just like Drew Barrymore. And I saw that there were tickets. And also I supported the writers, but I didn't know that they were connected. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I don't blame the random folks like just coming in off the street because the mainstream media doesn't report this shit. That's why we do our show. So like, I get that. And as soon as they had the thing explained to them, they came and joined the picket line. So they, they, you know, they, they didn't do anything really wrong. It's, yeah. the, it's the showrunners and Drew Barrymore. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Come on. Yeah. 
But um, one other thing I just wanted to add on there, there was one other high-profile scab this week who announced their intentions, but it doesn't merit an entire story because it was incredibly unsurprising, which is that Bill Maher is coming mm -hmm. back with new episodes of Real Time on HBO. So for all of your most annoying, shitty uncles, they will be very excited <laughs> that perhaps the least funny show in HBO's history is returning to air. Yeah, he announced it with a widely mocked Twitter post. I think almost every single person on the internet found a way to 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 grill him for this but i did just see on my facebook feed today somebody you ever see those those poems where they selectively edit out a bunch yeah. of things from a post they edited his post so it says real time is coming back unfortunately we all were hopeful this would come to an end but i love to see people suffer and i'll say it up front to the audience the show will not be good full stop <laughs> The heart of the show is bullshit, and that will continue. The show will disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that, if, had that been real, it would have been one of the most honest statements that Bill Maher said in years. <laughs> oh, wow. I love that. I love that. A little, little mid-episode meme review for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, and, and other things that we love, we love seeing a, uh, a movement in another form of you know something that has been quite under-organized. So, I mean, as this has been one hell of a week for the labor movement, one of the many stories that's come up this week is a union drive that could send shockwaves through college sports. On Thursday the 14th, 15 members of the Dartmouth men's basketball team filed with the NLRB for representation with SEIU Local 560. If successful, they could this could literally be a sea change in college athletics, as student-athletes have fought for decades against the system of indentured labor uh, that they work for. I mean, because for years, the NCAA has abused the definition of student-athletes as, quote, amateurs, the, to, to basically just avoid compensation for all of their labor. College athletes, especially in football and basketball, put their bodies on the line, making billions for schools while seeing no compensation besides tuition and room and board. They have also banned. They have also been banned from profiting from their own likeness, which I think is like beyond ridiculous. While the schools then make millions off of it. While some of these issues have made small progress, student athletes still lack some of the most basic labor protections. Now, yeah, like this is a really big step forward. Uh, you know, we've talked a few times on the show about organizing under uh, the NCAA and how just ridiculously exploitative college athletics are. Mm -hmm. Like it is basically a free labor force for mm -hmm. the, you know, the rich fucking coaches and trustees for all of these schools and all the board members on the NCAA who are again, making billions of dollars off the labor of largely young black men who are then not paid for the most part for that labor. Definitely not an arrangement that might sound sim like familiar at all in the mm -hmm. history of the United States. Well, and to me, the, um, the not being able to profit off your own likeness thing is particularly pernicious because uh, it, it really punctures the whole intellectual property copyright argument argument that we've been having online for the past couple of weeks where people are like oh if you object to that then you object to artists getting paid for their work well it's like these student athletes are doing literally all of the labor showing up showing their faces doing all the promo shoots doing everything and they're not even allowed to fucking profit off of it because according to the law the university owns their likeness until they graduate mm -hmm. so you you fucking tell me if intellectual property and copyright are really serving the people providing the fucking uh, input to society here 
Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And I mean, like, just to point out, there is no guarantee that the NLRB will even accept the Dartmouth workers' petition for a union election. Back in 2015, members of Northwestern's football team filed for a union election, but was turned down by the board, who claimed that they did not count as, a, as workers under the NLRA. However, this iteration of the NLRB has shown increased willingness to go after the NCAA, filing ULPs against them, the Pac-12 conference, and the USC specifically earlier this year. Since Dartmouth is a private school, this does give the NLRB a bit more leverage since they the NLRB does not necessarily have jurisdiction over public employees. Yeah, that's one of the things that can be another challenge for organizing in student athletics because under the NCAA, you'll have private schools and public schools playing in the same divisions, but under labor law, those are handled completely differently, where public workers are always handled under state law, which, as we've discussed on the show, can vary wildly from just regular shitty American style to you have no labor rights Mm -hmm. in, in, in many states if you're a public employee. And that's been one of the things that's been difficult in the past. Now, Dartmouth being a private school gives the NLRB more jurisdiction, but there is still very much the possibility that they could just say, look, you know, we've not traditionally had jurisdiction over athletics and we're not sure if athletes are employees. So, uh, we're, you guys should negotiate this yourself. Yeah, there is definitely a chance that they're going to they're going to sideline this very important issue, but I mean, we're hoping here that they decide to actually stand up for these highly exploited workers, especially when we hear a lot of the ludicrous nonsense coming out of the NCAA. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, current NCAA president and former Republican governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, repeated their tired bullshit claim that, quote, I don't think you'll find very many student athletes who want to be employees, which is a is a really, really pernicious way of framing that when you they're, like they're already employees, Charlie. It has nothing to do with whether they whether they have a union or not. They're already employees. Yeah, yes. I just do not. That's the most worthless bit of semantics I've ever heard in my entire. Like the idea that oh, if they if they count as employees, then we're gonna have to make them mop the floors. Literally, what the fuck are you talking about? We're yeah. gonna lose the mystic aura of of amateurship and and coll- coll- like collegial attitudes and all this idealistic bullshit that they try to create to mystify things yeah. that are actually far simpler than. They Look, make if them I out give them be. fucking money, they're gonna lose their love of the game. Okay, <laughs> that's basically what they've been saying for decades. That's so fucking acid. I've never heard something more wrong in my life. Yeah, I'm like, have you ever watched the NFL? <laughs> Like, come on. Yeah, use your fucking brain for two seconds. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I I definitely agree. The next steps uh, for this process, assuming Dartmouth doesn't voluntarily recognize the union, which we highly doubt, are, you know, the hearing to be held in early October with the the NLRB to determine if the workers are eligible for this election. If they say they are, we could probably see an explosion of Mm long-awaited organizing in college athletics because... I mean, this is a door that needs to be opened because I think a lot of workers don't file for these like these elections because they're like, there's no precedent. Well, they need like, this precedent. 
exactly. It, people say it's like really tough because it's been, you know, it's been pushed down and the institutions have fought against it for such a long time. But you also have to think like, why have they done that? It's because it's a fucking powder keg. If you let mm -hmm. one fucking set of college athletes start organizing as employees, it's extreme, not just possible it's extremely likely that it will explode the entire labor relations of college athletics across the country and i would argue like it almost certainly will because of the, the unique aspects of of the work that these you know student athletes are doing which is they're playing team sports at mm -hmm. one of the highest levels out there. So unity, solidarity as a team with your your you know your teammates is at the heart of everything that they do, and also at the heart of unionism, mm -hmm. <laughs> collective bargaining. So like the translation there of like no, we do all share the same interests, and you know we're kind of all getting screwed over here. But if we work together, we can overcome that. Frankly, I think that comes naturally, kind of. You know, once you, as you were pointing out, you know, once you've laid the precedent that yes, it is possible for student athletes to unionize, I think you're going to see a ton of schools. And I think you'll start seeing them a lot in basketball first, just because, you know, it's smaller teams. So again, you only need like 15 students mm -hmm. and you can file with the overwhelming majority. So yeah, I mean, this, I'm not sure how the NLRB is going to come down, but if they do rule in favor of this, we could see a complete turnover in the NCAA, which would be fantastic and a long time coming. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, Here's the thing. Basketball is a dynamic, direct action sport. And football, let's face it, highly bureaucratic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also do feel like the coaches in, in football have a particular role mm -hmm. in, 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 as like paternalist like representative of the school yeah. to be like, oh, you don't want to organize against your coach. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's this, you know, that's the sort of bullshit that they would deploy. And now I don't think that'll really be super effective, but I think it's more likely to be effective in football than in basketball. Right. Kind of football coaches with the very fatherly kind of aura in the American mythos compared to basketball coaches, which have a bit more of a stepdad kind of feel. <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. But, um, so moving to our next story, we've actually got a trio of uh, rail stories for you folks. So one of the, the other big staples of our show reporting on the awful conditions that are faced by rail workers, not only here, but around the world. And uh, starting right here at home in the United States, you know, one of the Biden administration's big justifications for just saying, no, workers, you don't get to have any democracy. You're not allowed to actually control your own destiny. You can't strike uh, was that. The nation's rail infrastructure, it's just too vital. It's just too critical to the nation's economy to allow a shutdown, which, of course, is actually a justification for nationalization, not for stopping a strike. But regardless, uh, the th problem with that is that, you know, as the rail workers themselves have been saying for years and as a new report this week from ProPublica uh, really underlines, is that the administration doesn't hold the freight companies to such a high standard of considering their, you know, the infrastructure they control so vital to the nation's economy. Mm -hmm. And this past Friday, federal regulators issued a letter to the country's biggest freight rail firm, Union Pacific, citing them for numerous safety violations. Per the letter, Union Pacific just refuses to perform basic maintenance. They operate equipment with twice the defect rate of the already unacceptably high national average for freight firms. And... The company goes so far as to demand that managers pressure safety inspectors to allow unsafe trains to run in order to meet freight deadlines. 
During an inspection of Union Pacific's North Platte, Nebraska rail yard, inspectors found defects in 70% of their locomotives and 20% of all the cars, which that may seem like much lower, but consider how many rail cars there are. And so one in five of them has an unacceptable safety problem. I mean, it's absolutely nuts. It, it, like we have some basic equipment that I can't even get the maintenance team at work to to keep updated, to keep enough ball bearings in my hand truck so that it works. But like my hand truck doesn't convey, you know, potentially toxic chemicals thousands of miles across a country. And I've never seen a train with less than five, uh, you know, cars unless it's just a, like a, a locomotive head, like just moving from one place to another. It's been 10 years since I've seen a freight locomotive with less than 40 cars on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And when it and so inspectors went to this this facility in Nebraska, identified this litany of, of problems and reported them to the company like, hey, you need to fix these. And so when inspectors returned after having identified those defects, none of them had been repaired. And a railroad official from Union Pacific's response was, quote, we haven't been able to get to them yet. <laughs> and so this is one of those things that I, you know, we try and underline on the show so much talking about the fact that the capitalist state is run by the capitalist companies. This is what I'm talking about. Because again, if you're an individual and the government is like, hey, your shit is illegal. First off, they don't usually give you a chance to fix it. They just throw you in jail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then they give you one chance. And if you don't, then, oh, well, you, 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 know, you violated the regulations. With these companies, they just defy the law openly and nothing happens. Yeah, well, I mean, like, if you're in charge of a fucking company, you get to just, like, play on Seymour Skinner mode, where every episode <laughs> you fuck up so bad it destroys the school and you just inexplicably are still in charge forever. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, 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 you know, this open disregard for safety, not again, not just for the rail workers, which would be enough, but also for everyone else in the country because of the fact that these trains are hurtling around everywhere at 100 miles an hour, or unfortunately, a, a lot lo slower a lot of time. But, um, but the response from the government to all of these problems and the fact that it, it has only been a sternly worded letter. Literally, there's been no fines. There's been no, you know, uh, threats to seize the company, which would make sense. It's just been, hey, watch it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I even and, think that that, sound, that threat sounds more uh, forceful than what the letter was. Yeah, yeah like the government, you know, they're they like, well, we would prefer the freight network to run better, but we're not going to actually do anything about it that, because that could be seen as negatively impacting the company's profits. And meanwhile, you know, when the rail workers last year demanded that they be allowed to take action to try and resolve some of these problems, the Biden administration stepped in to crush them. Now, the uh, part of this response has been the Department of Transportation has attempted to get rail yards to uh, participate in a voluntary safety reporting program, which again, it's if it's about safety, why is it voluntary? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's my first question. And the problem with making it voluntary is exactly what has happened, which is that all the companies have simply refused to participate. They've instead chosen to blame the safety problems on their work staff and claim that the reporting program, were they to participate in it, would allow their workers to escape responsibility. I'm sorry, what's your job? <laughs> what, literally, what do you do? Can you answer? Can you answer in 10 words? 
What do you do? I doubt they can. It's maddening. Like, are the workers supposed to be like the fucking safety inspectors and the managers and the people who make the schedule and like literally like wh- where does it end? <laughs> it's well, yeah. and it, they put in everything on the workers and yet the workers have little like no power in the situation mm-hmm. are told they're not allowed to actually do anything to fix that. I mean, it, yeah, it's ridiculous. And managers themselves have been ordering their subordinates to run unsafe trains. And so and when the workers try to push back, we've reported on cases of them being fired. Mm hmm. So the workers are are left in a absolutely impossible situation, which they had a remedy for, which was taken away from them by the government. Instead, we get this voluntary program that they all just refuse to take part in. The Union Pacific says that the program would slow down its ability to address safety issues, which seems to be contradicted by the fact that they refuse to address the safety issues. It, uh-huh. Especially with the rail companies, I feel like the position that they're in, with the way that their workers' hands are tied by the government, they 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 feel like they don't just have the liberty, but the prerogative to not just say something that's totally wrong, but to say literally the most ass-backwards thing you could possibly <laughs> say in the situation. To say the most Larry David-ass line imaginable mm-hmm. when prompted. It It's... It, It borders on psychotic because it makes me feel like I'm going crazy. Yeah. And so the workers have pointed out, they're like, well, hey, if this program would slow down your ability to address safety costs, why do you keep furloughing maintenance workers to cut your labor costs when those are the workers doing the maintenance that would solve the safety problems? Well, and the whole thing is just a death spiral, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. like if this goes unchecked, like if, if the workers do not... Uh, lay claim to their power and and demand their share. It's not just going to be the end of their you know livelihood or whatever. It's going to be the end of freight rail in the United mm-hmm. States. Period. Well, yeah, and I mean we're already seeing the results of that. Like East Palestine, all these constant derailments, explosions, collisions that that are constantly happening. It's like it's 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 kind of like with the climate crisis, mm-hmm. where it's like I think people sometimes think there's going to be like one moment. And everything's going to, like, you're going to have your 2012 movie moment where everything, or de- the d- day after tomorrow, where everybody fight, clicks for everybody. It's like, no, shit's just going to keep getting worse until we stop it from mm-hmm. getting worse. And speaking <laughs> of East Palestine, I mean, uh, Randy Fannin, a vice president of the BLET, told reporters that it is the rail carrier's application of lean manufacturing methods uh, in the form of precision scheduled railroading that is really at the heart of this problem, saying, quote, until these railroads say that they are done with uh, pre- precision scheduled railroading, this is what we're going to get. There is no community safe from these defects and dangerous situations. Union Pacific will have their East Palestine soon unless they correct these issues and return to a normal maintenance program, end quote. Yeah, I mean, absolutely correct. I mean, just speaking to the East Palestine thing. Yeah, and it, it couldn't be more correct, too, because it's like... You know, these these accidents are going to keep happening and they're going to keep poisoning communities and natural resources and, you know, protected wildlife and everything across the fucking United States. And it, it it's hard to imagine that in 20 years we're even still going to be able to ship anything across this country. It's just going to be all trucks. Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. And, and and showing just how blatant the cooperation is between the freight carriers and the government, investigators received numerous calls from Union Pacific managers asking them to stop their inspections because it was holding up business. 
like, hey, can you guys, like, come back another time? This is really kind of a pain in the ass. We'd really rather not do these. <laughs> We're trying to be precision here. <laughs> like, come on. It's, it's, it's just so ridiculous. And so Jared Cassidy, who's the legislative director for Smart TD, one of the other you know, major uh, rail unions, said, quote, it just speaks to the fact that company-based inspections are not being done in a meaningful way. And the fact that Union Pacific is furloughing is only doubling down on the status of our equipment and just how dangerous it really is. They're spitting in the face of railroad safety, end quote. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, fuck these rail companies. They shouldn't exist. It should all be nationalized. Mm -hmm. That's right. Which, actually, coincidentally, is exactly what the workers in Korea are also fighting for. Oh, hell yeah. Well, South Korea, the DPRK's rails are definitely already nationalized. (laughs) That's true. That's true. The DPRK has had nationalized rails for 70 years now. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. Going strong. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So... Uh, you know, we've we've talked a lot on the show about the fight back uh, against massive exploitation and the anti-worker government of President Yoon Suk-yeol in South Korea, and it only continues to grow with the latest salvo coming this week in the form of a nationwide strike by 13,000 rail workers. On Thursday, September 14th, again, a, a, an extremely auspicious day for labor, not just in the U.S., but around the world, members of the Korean Railway Workers Union, the KRWU, walked out demanding fair pay and better working conditions, but also, very specifically, actually demanding an expansion of the country's high-speed KTX rail system. It's like understaffing, but for rail lines. Yeah, well, it is, and actually, that's it, actually a good comparison, because uh, what they're getting at there is that the the country's state-owned railway operator, CoRail, the Korean railroad company, uh, they have announced that they expect that the strike will cut services by over 60% on passenger trains and up to 50% of freight service. So this is a really big strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, CoRail is planning to try and use scabs to keep the rails operating, but as we have seen from other rail strikes, this is very difficult to do as rail work is very specialized. And so... But getting to what they're asking for, like, obviously they want better, you know, wages and working conditions as, as all workers do. But one of the other things that they're fighting for is the ex- is, is they're fighting privatization. Because while the, there is CoRail, the nationwide rail operator, there's also a private company, SR Corp, that was formed in 2013 explicitly to compete in high-speed rail with the nationwide uh, pr- public system, uh, which uh, is a move that doesn't make any sense but is that, <laughs> if you actually want to operate a good high-speed rail network. But is something that we see happening in every single country influenced by the United States for like the last since forever, like how many mm-hmm. American companies have tried to compete with the post office, for instance? Yeah, no, 100%. And so, and so the company SR Corp, they run a parallel high-speed rail service called SRT, which operates on different rail lines and competes with the state-run KTX high-speed lines. And so the KRWU workers are demanding an end to preferential treatment for the private company's services at critical rail stations. Because basically the way it is is right now is that certain lines are just given over to the private company. And so these workers are like, that's bullshit. That's just going to lead to more and more privatization. That's just going to lead to more and more outsourcing, more and more union busting. So no more of that. Where we have, they're basically demanding, like where there are lines that SR Corp is allowed to run its high-speed rail trains on, we should be able to run the publicly run KTX high-speed trains on those as well. And so they're basically trying to put like a, you know, 
put a flag on, on, on the road and say, no, no more of this privatization. That stops now. We need to have a system that isn't just going to be turned over to some, uh, you know, profiteers who once they've taken over the whole network will just turn it into garbage and jack the prices up like every monopoly in a capitalist system does. And so, uh, unfortunately, like we've seen with so many strikes in, in uh, South Korea under this right-wing government, government officials have attacked the workers for striking uh, with co-rail head uh, Han Moon-hee calling the strike illegitimate, <laughs> which, cool, you don't get to declare that, mm -hmm. but all right. <laughs> and so on Wednesday, the day before the strike, uh, South Korea's labor minister, Lee Jong-sik, called uh, in vain for the workers not to strike, citing the disruption to the economy, saying, quote, at a critical time when everyone must join forces in the face of unfavorable economic conditions, the Railway Workers Union is raising public concern by sticking to its own demands alone, end quote, he said. Like the idea that, again, we say this every single time and very often in these like Korean strike stories is that they're saying that if these workers demands don't represent that of the public as if for one, the workers are not part of the public, but also right. as if this infrastructure wasn't, what is the word I just used? Infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also like, I don't know, maybe I'm too fucking communist already, but when I heard the railway workers union is raising public concern by sticking to its own demands alone, I thought fucking great wonderful <laughs> public education is a huge part of labor organizing love that <laughs> yeah no i mean exactly and so uh you know this is not an indefinite strike the workers have specifically announced they intend it to last four days so basically thursday through the end of the weekend but they have also stated they're like look this is our first strike they're like we're doing a four-day strike these are our demands and then we'll go back to the negotiating table. But they've said if the government continues to stonewall and to refuse to negotiate on their critical issues, that the strike could be extended or a new strike, a longer or even an indefinite one could also be launched, which I think is really good because it, you know, one of these things when, where you have a specific strike length is I think sometimes folks can get worried that, oh, the, the company is just going to try and wait that out and ignore it. So if you leave that option open, you know, you make it clear that it's like, look, we're going to stay strike ready. And if you keep fucking around, <laughs> the strikes are going to escalate, which has a little bit in common with another strike we're going to be talking mm -hmm. about a little later. Well, it gets to the fundamental strength of a strike, which is that the end of a strike isn't the end. It's the end... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this is also in line with recent militancy by rail workers in Korea. This is not uh, a rare strike. The workers went on strike in 2019, they went on strike in 2016, and went on strike in 2013 as well. So, you know, these folks have been more than willing to stand up and fight for what workers and the broader public really need. And, and, and while the government has been claiming, oh, we can't negotiate about the KTX issue. That's a public policy issue. We can't negotiate on that during a strike, which is like, why? <laughs> You're the government. You set the policy. Of course you can negotiate. Yeah, that's really funny. Like, to be the government, to be like, uh, public policy isn't in my job description. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's ridiculous, and so we're really glad to see these workers standing up and fighting back uh, against this bullshit. 
Yeah, and in a not unrelated story, our next one is uh, over in the UK, where the attacks on rail workers continue, this time by, well, as, I mean, not just by the Tory government, but this has been going on for a little bit, is uh, just continued to rise. The right-wing ghouls staffing the Conservative Party recently jammed through an anti-strike law, the Minimum Service Levels Act, which intends to cripple unions in critical sectors by making it illegal for them to effectively strike. The bill requires unions in transportation, energy, health, and public safety to maintain, quote, minimum service levels, end quote, during any strike or else be sued into oblivion, completely neutering any industrial action that would actually make the union's actions effective, uh, effectively turning them into toothless actions, which is exactly what these conservatives want. Mass protests have been held across the country, and the Trades Union Congress, TUC, has reported the law to the International Labor Organization for violating international standards, as reported by the BBC. But British workers are taking resistance to the next level, as this week the TUC and the RMT announced that they will refuse to comply with the anti-strike law. Penalties be damned. On Monday, September 11th, TUC delegates voted overwhelmingly in favor of a motion committing all member unions to a policy of non-compliance with the law. We love to see it. Mm-hmm. I'm also a little bit curious about reporting the law to the International Labor Organization and what that entails, because for a labor podcast, we sure have heard very little about the International Labor Organization, <laughs> and maybe that's because they're part of the UN, and the UN just routinely does not fucking do anything. That's uh, actually exactly why we haven't talked a lot about cool. the ILO on this show, <laughs> uh, which is because the ILO, like many other UN-aligned organizations, has a nominally you know, good mandate and actually has uh, no power to enforce said mandate in any way. Neat. I love that. Yeah, classic UN. Uh, so, yeah. like, are they just a, like a watchdog organization? But if they're getting yeah. reported to, then that's the watchdog organization, well, is the people it, reporting yeah. it to the ILO. It's because basically, you know, whenever you hear somebody's like, oh, you're breaking international law and then nothing happens, it's Mm. like the same thing. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay, cool. (laughs) So that they exist to like make a Twitter post in Europe that says these people did a bad thing and then that's just logged. (laughs) I I don't want to be overly dismissive because I think, you know, I think the folks who are part of the ILO do generally want to, you know, try and, uh, you know, call out uh, attacks on workers' rights. But uh, again, with no ability to enforce anything whatsoever, it's Mm -hmm. like... That's not. It's that's nice, but it's not really going to do anything. Yeah, that's and why also you need, like you know, communism, <laughs> an actual solution to this mm-hmm. problem. I love to look out for <laughs> workers' rights around the world from my gigantic concrete high-rise office building in Geneva. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So, uh, in this story, in a statement on the uh, motion's passage, the TUC said, quote, The passing of this motion today is a message of defiance to the government. The trade union movement will defend itself against these draconian new laws. TUC is now committed to a policy of resistance to the Minimum Service Levels Act, including noncompliance. This government's nasty authoritarian agenda will be vigorously opposed by the trade union movement. The trade union movement has defied anti-strike laws in the past and won, and it must be prepared to do so again, end quote. I love this. I also think uh, a use of an underrated uh, term for correctly describing the Tory government, which is nasty. Mm -hmm. Very appropriate. (laughs) 
Well, and also I, I love the idea that you're you're just like, look, we're we're gonna resist the act, including non-compliance, which is like the sweetest, kindest, gentlest way to say, you make a bad law, we'll break it. We'll fucking break it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and and one of the things I really appreciated, you know, uh, reading some of the articles about this story was that like a lot of the more militant union leaders, like people like Mick Lynch uh, from the RMT, but also Matt Rack from the Fire Brigades Union, were very clear about this. About they're just like uh, agreeing to anti-worker laws is bad. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and we actually have a clip here of Mick Lynch speaking to the Institute of Employment Rights. So the main thing from this meeting, and the main thing the rank and file of our movement has to say is that we refuse to comply. We refuse to be meek in the face of these attacks. And we will stand up for our members, but for our place in the history of our movement. Yeah, and and in a really good interview over at the Tribune magazine with Taj Ali, uh, where he talked to both Mick Lynch and Matt Rack, who, like I said, is the general secretary of the Fire Brigade Union, uh, where Rack gave what I thought was a really great quote, explaining you know why it's so important to push now for a movement to oppose these laws, uh, saying, quote, when we look at the history of anti-union laws, we've complied with all of them, and it just sets us up for the next one. This will not be the end of it. There will be further attacks if we go along with it and accept this, end quote. Absolutely. I mean, the the only way that we are going to get rid of anti-worker, anti-strike, anti-labor you know labor laws is by defying them and being very open with real action backing it up. Yeah, absolutely. So love to see this and solid continued solidarity with the long struggle of the uh, the workers in Great Britain uh, in this continuing cost of living crisis. Absolutely. Well, our next story brings us to where two thirds of the podcast is podcasting from Michigan, your favorite uh, set of peninsulas. That's right. So, uh, <laughs> and this is actually a UAW story, but it's not the one you would think we would be talking about. You still have to wait for dessert, folks. I'm so sorry. It's more vegetables. <laughs> but um, this is uh, something that happened on Wednesday, September 13th, where 1,100 UAW workers at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan deployed picket lines at locations across the state after the company failed to meet key demands before their contract expired. BCBS is the largest health insurer in Michigan, and its workers are represented by four different UAW locals at offices around the state, locals 1781, 2500, 2145, and 2256. Despite the differences between the automaking and insurance industries, let's be real, there are plenty. Uh, (laughs) There's still plenty of overlap on key issues. The UAW workers of BCBS are fighting to roll back decades of concessionary givebacks and rampant outsourcing of union work. At a strike rally Wednesday morning, UAW Local 1781 President Tina Gates said, quote, Over the years, we have lost so much work. They've taken our work and given it to outside contractors. At one point, we were over 4,000, 5,000 people in the union across the state. Now we have 1,300 people. So we're tired of bleeding. We're tired of them taking our work, end quote. And I mean, that's really dramatic. You hear a lot about outsourcing and you hear about it in the news and they kind of softball it and they're like, these workers are mad that 10% of their work is gone. But then you look at these cuts over time and you look at the way they add up and to be you know utterly fucking decimated from down to a a quarter of your original membership i mean it's shocking and it is very similar to what we see in the automotive industry well and this is also one of those things i think it's so important to point out to people because what it like one of the most common things that you'll hear 
from union busters or just folks that have absorbed anti-union talking points over the years from the just propaganda that pervades everywhere is this idea that if you're in a union, you're not going to really be able to do your job the same way. They're going to put you like walls around your job description and you're not going to be able to work with other people, which is bullshit. But the reason that it's, I'm bringing that argument up is because what a rigorously protected job description does in a union contract is fight against this sort of thing because this is how companies get away with outsourcing what was previously union work is they chip away at those job descriptions by saying, oh, this was too vague, so actually we can create a new position for this work that wasn't well-defined or and we can farm that out to a non-union outsourcer. And, or, and sometimes they'll just be like, oh yeah, this work isn't union, even if it is. And mm -hmm. they'll just try it and see if they can get it through the legal system and, and ju or just see if the, you know, the union won't have the resources to fight it in court. And so like, this is exactly the result you get when companies go after the ability of unions to actually lay down, you know, this is union work and it has to go to union workers. Mm -hmm. And this is what they do. They now have converted, again, thousands of those jobs to lower paying, shittier benefits and worse hours jobs for non-union workers. Absolutely. And another big parallel that we see with the auto industry here is that the workers are trying to end a draconian two-tiered wage system. So currently new hires at BCBS in Michigan have to stay with the company for 22 years, longer than I've been in the workforce before yeah. equalizing their pay scale with veteran workers. And this has resulted, unsurprisingly, and as was assuredly the intent, in massive turnover and completely exacerbated the problem of outsourcing to non-union contractors. The UAW has demanded the tiered wage system be abolished entirely and all workers placed on the same wage scale, which is like... That's up there with uh, going for the 32-hour work week in terms of like things I think that are important to set going forward. It's just like the labor movement, we are done with tears and we mm -hmm. want to work less hours. Yeah, just and I mean, it's it's I think it's pretty simple to explain to folks where it's just like, yeah, people who do the same work need to be on the same wage scale. It's mm -hmm. that simple. It's not even That's that they have to have the same wage. Seniority is right. fine. Like raises are a thing. We get that. But we just have to all be entered into the same exact program. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So um, at the same time that workers have been stuck with raises of just 3% annually, BCBS of Michigan CEO Daniel Lepp Dutch detected, took home $16.9 <laughs> million last year, as reported by the Detroit Free Press. The company blamed the union for walking away from the table and claimed that they have, quote unquote, contingency plans in place to continue operations, likely alluding to their use of non-union scab labor. Which... This whole thing, it, to me, I put this in here, just underlines, like, why, why, why is BCBS allowed to exist? Like, why are any of these private... Like, they're just protection rackets. Mm -hmm. Every single one of these insurance companies, their whole thing is like, yeah, wow, it seems like a lot of people get sick and then you don't have any resources. That's a shame. If you gave us some money, maybe that wouldn't happen. Or maybe it still will. You don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's, like, fuck them. None of them should exist. These people should all be public employees and they should be working for the public health system, mm -hmm. helping people, you know, get the the care that they need, not helping, you know, BCBS deny people. Absolutely. Care. And we heard from the union in a letter to workers ahead of the strike saying, quote, 
In the days and weeks ahead, it is vital that we remain supportive and united. We must stand shoulder to shoulder, ready to take action, and remind BCBSM that our strength lies in our solidarity. Together, our voices will be heard, and our actions will shape the future. End quote. And I, uh, yeah, my advice, guys, go for the throat. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that that quote leads us very well into the story that everyone has been anticipating with actions that will shape the future and solidarity that will be seen and heard by the UAW and their new stand-up movement. We're finally yeah. there. That's right. So, folks, you know, <laughs> the story even waiting for, we're going to be talking about the UAW who this week for the very first time in their now almost century of of existence are striking the big three automakers all three at once uh you know for months sean fain and the uaw have been very clear to the bosses that september 14th the expiration date of their contracts was a hard deadline not just a guidepost on the road and that without a fair deal they would be forcing the 150,000 members of the UAW to strike. And so as the 14th came and went with the bosses still refusing to agree to fair compensation after the workers again have created 250 billion dollars in profits in the last I think decade or so. Uh and so with the companies refusing to provide an actual fair offer, the UAW made good on that declaration and launched their strike against the big three. Now, we got to talk about how that strike was launched because they're doing a, a new strategy here that uh, is going to be really interesting to watch play out. So uh, as, as Lena was you know, alluding to, on Friday, the union launched what they are calling a stand-up strike at all three of the big uh, American monopoly automakers for GM and Stellantis. And uh, this actually borrows tactics that have been used by some uh, European unions in strike, where not all of the workers in the UAW are walking out at once. Uh, At midnight Friday morning, locals at critical plants, one at each of the three uh, uh, major companies, began their strike, while the rest of the locals maintained the status quo, continued working under an expired contract. And on Wednesday evening, explaining the union's strategy, uh, Fain said that this is, again, just the beginning, and that as the strike continues, if the companies continue to refuse to actually put forward a fair offer that the workers can accept, that the pain will increase, and that more and more locals will go on strike. And so this tactic of leaving the strike relatively small to start but growing over time, provides the union potentially with two key benefits. First, most obviously, is that it stretches out how far the union's substantial strike fund can last. Because while, of course, the UAW has, I believe, the largest strike fund uh, in the country, they also have some of the most generous strike benefits, which is good uh, because it means that workers will be taken care of while they're on strike, But it does also mean that because the union is paying $500 a week in strike pay and then adding another $500 on top of that for the health care payments for workers, because, of course, the auto companies will cut off the health care of anyone who strikes and the union is going to make sure that folks are able to get their health care, that it could be eaten up quickly if all 150,000 went on strike at once. So by shutting down plants selectively, they're able to stretch that out. Yeah, I I mean, like, this isn't an official number, but I saw a bunch of, I mean, reading comments is not necessarily a place to get news, but I did see that if literally everybody went on strike all at once, that money could dry up within about two months, and we do not know how long this process is going to go. And, yeah, and so the other benefit of, of, you know, 
doing these selective strikes is that it makes it very difficult for the companies to prepare because, you know, if everybody goes out on strike, it's a huge impact all at once, but the companies kind of know what they're dealing with. Whereas this, they don't know which plant's going to be operating from one week to the next. And so that could potentially give the union a lot more flexibility with maintaining the strike for a long time while continuing to escalate pressure on the companies. And so uh, at 10 p.m. Thursday evening, just before the strike was launched, uh, Sean Fain held a brief live stream to announce the start of the strike and announced the three plants that would be striking at midnight. And so the three plants that have walked out uh, uh, so far are GM's Wentzville, Missouri assembly plant, which makes Chevy trucks, Stellantis, uh, which owns the zombie corpse of Chrysler's uh, Jeep assembly plant in Toledo, Ohio, and Ford's Michigan assembly plant in... Now, I guess I'll ask my Michigan co-host, is Wayne, Michigan considered part of Detroit as it looks like to me on a map, or is it considered to be a separate town? It's probably a suburb. We're from the Lake Michigan part of the state. We do not know... (laughs) I would. I, I mean, like, I'd say it's probably a suburb. I mean, there's. I mean, there's so much that is a suburb of Detroit, but I mean, I it's don't. It's further it's, out than Dearborn. Then I've been to Detroit. De- I've been to Detroit twice. I think <laughs> I, I've been to Chicago eight times because it is way closer. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair it's enough. almost certainly not part of Detroit proper. Yeah. So. So Ford's Michigan assembly plant in Wayne, uh, Michigan, which makes Ford Rangers and Ford Broncos. And so combined, these three plants, uh, you know, have 13,000 UAW members who down their tools and hit the picket lines as Thursday rolled into Friday and the contract expired. And so, you know, at the moment, the strike is basically laser targeted at some of the company's most profitable vehicles because it's those big trucks and SUVs, the Broncos, the Jeeps, the uh, the Chevy Silverados that these three plants create that bring in the biggest profit margins to the three companies. So hence the targeting of those uh, plants. But of course, as Sean Fain laid out in the live stream, that's just where the strike is for now. Uh, the strike will continue to grow when and where the union chooses based on how the company responds at the bargaining table. And the union can ratchet up the strike at any time, which I think is a really interesting strategy and it's going to be really fascinating to continue to play out. And one of the, the potential upsides to this sort of a strike strategy we saw reported on social media on Friday morning uh, where some workers uh, posted that Company managers were so confused by this tactic, not sure which plants were going to be uh, struck, and some of whom may have uh, received some intentionally planted misinformation, a move which would not be without precedence (laughs) uh, in in the UAW's history, Uh, and that these managers diverted parts from plants that they thought were going to be struck at midnight, Mm. but were not two plants that they thought were not going to be struck, but then were. Uh, And so moving parts from where they could be used to where they couldn't, just disrupting their own operations because they didn't know where the strike was going to be happening. That's so fucking cool. I mean, really? (laughs) That's like, that's some fucking art of war shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so that, you know, points to, I think, one of the big potential upsides. And also, of course, because auto manufacturing is such a complicated uh, industry that has so many moving parts, shutting down those three plants isn't just 
shutting down those three plants because those plants also produce parts used by other facilities. And some workers have already posted on social media on, on Friday that uh, their plants have, have said that they will have to shut down within a week because of the loss of parts from those plants. So I would, you know, expect the strike to continue to grow as the impacts start to ripple outwards. And I think one of the benefits of that of, I mean, not to say that laying off workers is good, but that also means that those workers go on unemployment benefits, which does not come out of the strike fund, but their health care probably will still be cut, but then the union will still cover that health care. Depends on how the companies do it. I have seen some reporting where folks are concerned that they'll use like temporary layoffs where mm. they don't get unemployment, but they also have to go on Cobra. So, but I'm not, I'm not, I have, I'm not a hundred percent sure on those details, but I am sure that the companies will try to make it as shitty as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I guess so, we'll see on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's going to be part of the, back and forth as the union adapts its tactics to how the company responds. And now one of the things, of course, that's interesting here is that you've got still 135-ish thousand auto workers continuing to work under status quo conditions at their current plants, which of course raised a lot of questions for workers, understandably, about like, well, wait, if y'all are out on strike, but we're still working, how does that all work? And so the UAW put out a a whole bunch of really good resources for folks to explain like how working under an expired contract works. And really, most of the provisions of the old UAW contract still apply. There's a few specific differences where like, for instance, of course, the company can choose to lock out workers at a plant in the same way that the workers can choose to strike now that the contract is expired. And there are some changes to like how the grievance procedure works and a couple other things. But for the vast majority of items, including critically any negotiated agreements on line speed and pace of work stay in place. And so if you know, supervisors at plants that have a previously agreed on, uh, you know, pace of that the line moves at, if they try and speed up production in order to compensate for the loss at other plants, then union workers are still empowered to fight back against that, even though there are added challenges by working on the expired contract. So, but they, there's a whole FAQ that the UAW put out on their website that, that and, and, and they've also, of course, been working with all their shop stewards to help be able to explain that how that process works. Yeah, and, and j- just to, just real quick to plug that, if you, I mean, just right there to the uaw.org slash standup, you can find mm-hmm. that information. Yeah, there's a lot of great resources on. There. I think that also has a map uh, on there of of where all the big three facilities are, which which can be useful, especially for our listeners who aren't, of course, auto workers. Um, and now to also lay out though some things because I've seen some people talk about this. The one thing that is critical, though, the way that this is is laid out in U.S. labor law, the workers that are still working on the expired contract can't then initiate something like a slowdown. Because that would be classed as a partial strike, which is illegal. Mm. Uh, But the workers will continue to be organizing and getting ready in case their plant is called to join the strike. And so there will still be practice pickets, community rallies, and of course, red union shirt days at those plants to maintain the level of unity and preparedness so that if the strike is forced to expand because of big three intransigence, that the workers will be ready to down tools at a moment's notice. And, um, and so, you know, with all this rolling out on Friday, using this new strategy for the first time, it it does seem really, you know, to have, uh, invigorated some of the militancy that the long rule of the admin caucus and the UAW 
had really been fighting to suppress. Uh, on uh, workers at GM's Spring Hill plant in Tennessee told Labor Notes that their shop stewards have coordinated a, a shop-wide refusal of all voluntary overtime, keyword voluntary, you're not allowed to refuse mandatory overtime, uh, during the expired contract, and that they're organizing this for the first time in 15-plus years at that facility. Hell yeah. And, and then on Friday, as the strike began... <laughs> I hate that I was surprised to see this, but there was a lot of pictures that came out of the f- workers at the Ford plant in, in Wayne successfully turning around a lot of big truck deliveries. Because, And I say surprised, not because of anything on the workers' end, but because usually when we see picketers trying to you know, run a picket the way a picket is supposed to work, the cops show up and beat the shit out of people. Mm-hmm. And that still may very well happen. But on Friday, the workers at least seemed to have the upper hand, which was really dope to see. I think while also keeping the company on their toes, the cops also don't have the information that they need to suppress the workers like they would like to. Yeah, absolutely. And so, of course, as for the companies themselves, uh, we know that they intend to try to use non-union managers as replacement workers with, uh, according to reports from Labor Notes, uh, Ford, I guess, was supposedly ready to deploy up to 1,200 managers as scabs. But, of course, as we saw during the John Deere strike, that comes with its own set of risks, uh, both to the product and to the safety of those workers who are not trained uh, or really equipped to do uh, auto line production, which is not the easy job that it is portrayed as by uh, people who don't know what they're talking about. Um, and per labor, again, per other, that's just, I just want to throw a plug in here. Labor Notes is doing incredible coverage of this strike. They should be your go-to, like if you, if you want the best up to the like date reporting, they, they should be the first place that you look. They've got tons of people on the ground doing this reporting and they've, a lot of the information that I'm using is from labor notes. So just shouting them out as always. And so again, per their reporting, Stellantis has been trying to prepare for the strike by stockpiling parts, which is another area where the stand-up strategy, where you're kind of doing this whack-a-mole shutdown of plants could also interfere because if they're just stockpiling a shitload of parts, but they don't know which plant is going to shut down, they don't necessarily know which parts to focus on or where to reroute them to. Well, and like also when they do try to move materials and stuff like that around, it makes their strategy inflexible. They have to commit to decisions they mm-hmm. make, whereas the union strategy is highly flexible. They can respond to what the company does m- much more quickly. Yeah. Now, one asterisk there is that basically like once a plant is struck, mm-hmm. it does have to stay struck. Sure. Like they can't strike for three days, unstrike, strike for two more days, those intermittent strikes also illegal. Well, no, but they, they, they can get the in, intel that they need on where the company is moving the parts around and yes. then make a plan for which plants to strike in what order. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that is actually one of the things I think that is so interesting about this strategy is it kind of makes the intelligence gathering mm-hmm. by both sides like an, a whole order of magnitude even more important than it already is during these struggles. I love that, though, because honestly, that kind of like intelligence and honestly, what what strikes me as variety engineering is is extremely beneficial to people who are trying to fight uh, through an, a power imbalance like this. It mm-hmm. gives the it gives the people who traditionally don't have as much power much more of an edge in the situation. Well, and, and I also think it plays to what the union strengths are, mm-hmm. which is that how many eyes and ears do we have in the plant? How many eyes and ears do the bosses have in the plant? Mm-hmm. It's not fucking close. Yeah, absolutely. So, Especially with the solidarity of the workers making sure to, you know, keep their information close to their chest. 
I, I really think that this is also an example of unions being prepared, the unions being the school of communism, where we learn mm-hmm. to defend our fellow workers and actually build power in a way that will be against capital. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, both ahead of the strike on Thursday and afterwards on Friday, we had the CEOs of the big three uh, turn to the strategy of trying to do some PR themselves going on the media in person, which has um, not worked out great for them if they were trying to be relatable. (laughs) Uh, Because, for instance, on Thursday, Ford CEO Jim Farley went on CNBC and responded to the UAW's proposal saying... There's no way we can be sustainable as a company. That's why we put our proposal in two weeks ago to say, look, you want, you want us to choose bankruptcy over supporting our workers? Here's our proposal. Let's work through this. <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, that's not how that works, buddy. <laughs> it's like, this is the thing, one of those things that I, I think is they think is such a great line, which is that your demands are going to bankrupt our company. Mm -hmm. I think they think that works because you'll see sometimes like trolley comments and like social media about that. But it's like $21 billion in profits in the first six months. As soon as I tell somebody that they don't believe you anymore. Well, and it's (laughs) also like, let's work through this is an insulting ass thing to say, because I am once again asking, what is your job? (laughs) what do you do exactly yeah and it just reminds me of the clips of the workers out there it's like uh no something what is it the what other vehicle no something no broncos uh fuck them all yeah yeah yeah. no jeeps no broncos uh oh yeah no justice no jeeps no justice no broncos fuck them all (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean if you got workers out there saying fuck them all i mean (laughs) well and i mean you know uh speaking on on the gm side of things uh, GM CEO Mary Barra went uh, on CNN in a widely distributed clip where I will say she responded to a surprisingly good question from CNN <laughs> asking, you know, uh, why workers' demands are so unreasonable when she, the CEO, made nearly $30 million last year. So you mean a, a surprisingly normal question? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> A question that should be obvious, but in the American media, uh, you know, as part of the ISA that it is, is extremely rare. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so her response to that was... Well, if you look at uh, compensation, my compensation, 92% of it is based on performance of the company. I think when the company does well, everyone does well. Yeah, this is clearly a lie. I mean, like, not that her compensation isn't based on the performance of the company, but that, you know, her getting raises based on that means that everybody else is because we have seen workers' wages cut 30 percent in 20 years well and it's also so funny because she's like my compensation 92 percent of it is based on the performance of the company well then why isn't everybody's why isn't it that Mm -hmm. when the company starts making record fucking profits everybody starts making record fucking wages why is that not the fucking case yeah yeah Yeah. and well and the reason she says you know compensation and not salary Mm -hmm. why she says it's based on performance of the company what she's alluding to there is that 92 percent of her compensation is based on the company's stock price right Mm. and 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 again which is irrelevant to the workers and it's like oh everyone prospered you have like a million shares of the company and the rest of the workers have like two so no everybody doesn't prosper when the company does well it's you and the fucking shareholders and you leave the workers holding the bag well and it's like so transparent cuz she literally says my compensation is based on 
the performance of the company and then says, when the company does well, everyone does well. You just said that when the company does well, you do well. Yeah. That's, you, that's not even close to the same thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's ridiculous. And so, like, in the run-up to the strike, as we got, you know, close to midnight Thursday, the companies did increase their incredibly insulting first offers to closer to what the workers were asking for, but still nowhere near close enough. Uh, so the companies did raise their wage increase offer up to a 20% raise, which, again, is, is a, was a 5% raise each year of the four-year contract, which is still only half of what the workers are demanding, and they continued to make no improvement on many other issues, including continuing to refuse to end the practice of long-term abuse of temp workers, with companies agreeing to raise temp worker wages slightly and agreeing to, ro- to roll some current temporary employees mm. into permanent employees, but no protections whatsoever for any future temp workers. Well, and it's so weird because like, this is what I'm harping on when I say like the intransigence of the big three is at a level that like, even in the American labor market, we're not used to fucking seeing because like the fact that they are, they are facing down this much activity and their response is to move the wage knob up just a hair and be like, I'm not touching any other knobs. That's in yeah. that is so that I mean that's just in a different reality space from where we all yes. live. Yeah, I mean this is one of those cases cuz you know I feel like we get there's the two dials for a lot of the CEOs where it's like evil level and incompetence level. Mm-hmm. And here you know, the evil level is always basically on 10 when we're talking about American CEOs. But I feel like the incompetence and just detachment from reality, like you're alluding to with the the big three CEOs, is is at like a different tier mm-hmm. than we're used to because they just exist outside the same space that all the rest of us live yeah. in. This is like a this is like an Emmanuel Macron level of disattachment <laughs> from reality. That's yes. what I'll say about it. <laughs> well, and speaking of the government. Oh, yeah. Uh, The White House has attempted to insert itself into negotiations as well. Biden dispatched multiple staffers to Detroit and has made public statements saying that the automakers need to share their record profits with the workers. The White House also may implement some measures to ease the impact of the strike on workers at peripheral suppliers, not as part of the strike, but that are still impacted by the plant shutdowns. However... That would be good if they do that, but they haven't actually committed to do anything yet. So I don't want to give them credit for something they're just potentially going to do. Well, and also it's entirely suspect the way that like they waited until like it happened. The strike is on and then Mm -hmm. they all swooped in and they said, oh, we're going to help you take care of it. We'd love to Mm -hmm. mediate, blah, 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 blah. Where were you? Where were you months and months ago? Where, where, why weren't you calling your friends at fucking Stellantis and telling them to cave into the workers way before mm-hmm. any of it came to this? You're a liar mm-hmm. and you don't deserve the spotlight. Fucking yeah, liar. well, and I think that, I mean, this is not lost on the union leaders because, I mean, as Biden said that negotiations had broken down, Sean Fain said that, quote, our national elected negotiators at UAW leadership are hard at work at the bargaining table. The companies and the media want to use fear tactics about how we're going to wreck the economy we're not going to wreck the economy the truth is is we're going to wreck the billionaire economy working people are not afraid you know who's afraid the corporate media is afraid the white house is afraid the companies are afraid end quote and man sean fain 
really just nailing it with that one because it is not the workers that are going to be you know seeing these massive problems it is literally the the people who steal from workers who are going to be seeing problems from this strike yeah i know sean fain is in too much of a position of authority within the labor movement to just kind of do the boomer posting at the end of this so i will triple exclamation point a hundred emoji (laughs) fire emoji brain exploding emoji sunglasses emoji Yeah, no, I mean, this is re- I, this is a completely different response than we are used to seeing from labor leaders in the United States to this sort of attempt by the Democrats to co-opt a movement they have played absolutely no part in supporting whatsoever. And instead of just saying, oh, thank you so much for mentioning us, like, you know, we sometimes would see, this is like, hey, if you want to tell the bosses to give us money, great. But this shit about how the strike is scaring workers, that's a bunch of bullshit. Like, none of these workers are afraid of the strike. They're ready for the strike. They're fucking gassed up for it. The only people that are worried about it are all these corporate stooges and all your big fucking donors. So maybe you Mm -hmm. should go tell them to wise the fuck up. Yeah, and again, like we've said this before, but it's worth remembering, one of the kind of upsides of the uaw not going on strike for a really long time is their strike fund is fucking huge (laughs) yeah like there was a strike back in 2019 but it was only at gm Mm -hmm. and it you know didn't it it was like about i think about a third of the the workforce so there's been a long time to build up that strike fund and this is i believe the first time that they have struck ford in like 50 years Mm -hmm. because the previous strikes you know since they've been based on pattern bargaining have previously been will target one of the companies and then force the other two to agree which is that's like that i have no issue with that strategy but because of the use of that strategy they've been traditionally targeting either gm or stellanus slash chrysler in recent years so this is the first opportunity that ford workers uh in in michigan have had a chance to legally strike in a long time. And so, uh, you know, I think that was reflected when we saw that when you broke down the strike authorization vote under Ford workers, it wasn't 97%. It was 99%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, and then speaking back to like, who's actually going to help the workers, it's definitely not going to be the Biden administration. I mean, it's mm-hmm. way more realistic that it's going to come from the rest of labor. The Teamsters have already announced that they will not haul cars produced by struck plants and messages of solidarity have come in have come in from organized workers around the country and even outside the country Luis Feliz Leon reported earlier in the week about that and how some Mexican auto workers have been organizing around the strike by refusing to agree to speed ups and increased line speeds at Mexican plants as the companies try to compensate for the strike abroad which absolutely love that that like that like i know it's like cliche to do the uncut gems quote but it's like solidarity is how we win like Mm -hmm. literally like this is the sort of thing like the the mexican workers standing with the american workers and critically vice versa Mm -hmm. and when the mexican workers strike the uaw workers in the u.s standing with them like that's the only way that we make this shit work. Well, and it's us. like it really helps demystify what solidarity is cuz I think when a lot of people hear that word even if they've been on the left for a long time, even if they're in the labor movement, whatever, they think it's like a warm fuzzy thing. That's like an acknowledgement of the human condition and you're all my brothers and sisters on, and stuff. On Twitter or changing your avatar on Facebook. Yeah, it's like something that you feel, but it's not. It's a fucking tactic and it works. It's just a little bit diffuse and hard to wrap your head around sometimes because it happens in the relationships between large groups of of people mm-hmm. absolutely yeah 
Yeah, well, and also, just to emphasize, you know, the importance, because I think folks may take the Teamsters' help a little for granted because, you know, it's understood Teamsters being a militant union have long had in their contract the uh, agreement not to cross picket lines. But I think this is so important to point out because, again, as we mentioned, you know, one of the strategies that these companies always use during these strikes is attempting to operate plants using scabs, often with managers. Well, it's not going to do them a whole lot of good to try to operate the plants with scabs if they can't ship the things they produce anywhere mm-hmm. because the Teamsters refuse to haul them. Yeah, and you can't drive those cars off the lot because you put any miles on them, the value goes down right away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, speaking of solidarity, I mean, for listeners looking to help out, Labor Notes has a great article on ways to help out the union. If you live near any of the striking plants in Wetsville, Missouri, Toledo, Ohio, or Detroit, of course, we encourage people to join the picket lines and reach out to locals to find out what donations might be able to be used by the workers. But if you're in a union yourself, you can make it an official solidarity. Vi- you can make an official solidarity visit to the picket, and that would be really ideal yeah and for the rest of us you know if if there isn't a striking plant near you there are still may be a big three facility near you that's another thing uh i'll put the link to that uh labor notes like how you can help the striking auto workers in the 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 description of the episode because it's it's a great episode and it's got a link to a map of all of the big three facilities and there's a lot of them Mm -hmm. Uh, they, they they cover a broader swath of this country than you'd expect and so while you know only these specific plants are on strike for now. A, it's good to know where the nearest plant is in case it should go on strike, but also critically, again, to keep the organization level up, to keep workers mobilized, and to show the backing of the community. There will continue to be public events where you'll be able to go show Mm -hmm. uh, your support, uh, like practice pickets, community rallies, marches, all that sort of thing. And so, you know, we definitely encourage folks, like, to be on the lookout for those if there is a plant near you. Those opportunities where even if the plant's not on strike, you could go and, and, you know, show and, and and reinforce that like if they do have to go on strike that the whole community is behind them and will stand with them and materially support them yeah, yeah. and you, you don't have to do anything crazy like uh, let's say you're a unionized starbucks or other coffee shop employee striking workers love coffee it's like one of their yeah. number one things <laughs> Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, if you're just looking for a lot of this information and you're having trouble traversing this, I mean, our discord is full of links. I mean, it is I mean, it's usually very active. But since the beginning of this strike, it has exploded. So there's lots of information there. People will tag me on Facebook and in people's posts when they're like, I'm thinking about unionizing or my my union's facing this issue and whatever. And I try to help if I can, but I mostly point them to the Discord because honestly, there's people in there who are have way more time and resources to help you than I do when I'm like in my work truck or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so obviously, you know, we're going to continue to this is going to be the big story as pretty much as long as the strike continues, because with, you know, the UAW out on strike, adding to the the broader movement where we've got SAG-AFTRA and the WGA also out on strike, all the Starbucks workers fighting across the country. So, you know, uh, this is a huge event in, in the ongoing upsurge, and we're going to be really excited to continue following it as it continues to evolve. And, of course, all of our solidarity uh, with the UAW auto workers. May they take the big three for everything they are worth. Hell yeah. yeah. 
And I know you're not complaining about how long this episode has been, but you're we're finally there, folks. We made it to the meme review. This is probably one of the longest news episodes that we've done, and uh, we are we are just gonna be hitting these really uh, good memes uh, while we are here. I guess at this point, anyway. <laughs> what a what a transition there. <laughs> Yeah, so this first one is a is a quickly done uh, uh, edit of a couple of scenes from Always Sunny, uh, where you've got at the top you've got uh, Dennis and Mac uh, sitting there, but they're labeled now SAG after and WGA saying uh, solidarity to use, <laughs> and, and then the next panel is a bunch of these local like uh, uh, you know Italian tough guys in tracksuits. Uh, in tracksuits, then pointing back to them very respectively, uh, labeled as UAW and solidarity to you. <laughs> <laughs> I love I the guy it, on the left who's kind of giving him the like couple open fingers, like a kind of hand gesture. <laughs> I, I think that this is from a scene where Mac is like, "No, I know how to talk to these folks," and then just like just speaks in like like that weird like cliche Italian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then the next one is actually a new DeShare Zone style where it almost looks like an album cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The the top of this one says, fuck it, we should have a three-day wor- uh, we should have a three-day week. And then uh, there's a big red skull with smoky background and water splashing honest, in the background. This would actually make a good album mm-hmm. cover. It's true. Now, also, this is maybe a little bit of information. If you follow DeShare Zone on any of their platforms, check out the alt text on their pictures because it is <laughs> thorough and good. But anyway, more funny. inside of this picture with the red skull and all that, it, there's background text that kind of faded into the background. It says, damn, it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why, but somebody being their own hype person and like standing by behind themselves going damn it's a good idea to reinforce their own ideas there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then uh on the bottom there is just this but like really small text that says friday uh friday let's do your friday really let's <laughs> oh yeah free day let's you do your errands monday <laughs> is the real sunday correct <laughs> correct that's right uh, and as silly as they are, you know, I think they got a solid program. That's right. <laughs> I'm liking it. I'm liking what I'm seeing on this album cover. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Our next meme is from <laughs> Cats and Hard Hats, and it just has a little cat in a hard hat with his little Zoomies energy drink standing in front of a uh, uh, a backhoe. Is a burning front I don't, end loader? I don't think it's technically, it's not a backhoe technically because it doesn't have the rear excavator. Mm-hmm. So I think this is just an excavator. Oh, it's an excavator. Okay, I see. So he's standing in front of an excavator, the cab of which is clearly on fire and billowing smoke out. Uh, and it says at the top, normalize being bad at your job. And then where you would expect bottom text, you just look at the sad little game. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it reminded me of the one where it's the the meme where it's a text conversation mm-hmm. where the person's just like normalize being late to your job, <laughs> specifically two hours late, and then it's their boss like, wait, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then also calling back to one of our early stories about Drew Barrymore, this one is the IRL loading screens with the uh, like Skyrim or Oblivion, maybe it's Oblivion style loading screen with the kind of like brown paper background and the it's the sepia tone yeah the sepia tone uh with drew barrymore and uh i 
can't. Bill Maher. Yeah, and Bill Maher, as the photos, it says, uh, some quests may present you with a choice to betray your faction in exchange for gold. And, uh, <laughs> you know, just saying that these motherfuckers are scabs. And, and it's important to let them know that we will remember that. I mean, in Bill Maher's case, it doesn't matter. He's a piece of shit. He, he relishes it, but... Uh, ostracizing people is an important part of uh, enforcing that no one should ever scab. The show will disappoint. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And so for our last one, folks, just uh, a classic reminder for everyone. It's just Mr. Burns pointing at a sign labeled, don't forget, you have to do the labor organizing, not just look at memes. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I'm offended. I like these. <laughs> we, we do this every day or every week. Uh, but also, I'm not because it's right. <laughs> Rare Mr. Burns W. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we are there. That is the end of this episode. Uh, just a little piece of information. Listen past the music. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, for everyone who supports the show, we really appreciate it. And if you'd like to support us, we are entirely listener supported. You could do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. Not only are you helping us make sure that we can report this news, but also it allows us to do all of our overtime content, which there is a ton of. Make sure to jump in the Discord and uh, write us a review somewhere. Follow us in all the places. The links are at workstoppagepod.com. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Stand with the UAW. Morning might never come round These parts are never gonna come up Morning might never come round These parts are never gonna come up Morning might never come round These parts are never gonna come up Morning might never come round These parts are never gonna come up
detractors or the accusers or the people of the other side, I would say that they would make ideal human sacrifices. Again, in talking about that, this, this class warfare, people accuse us and say this is class warfare. There's been class warfare going on in this country for the last 40 years. The billionaire class has been taking everything and leaving everybody else to fight for the scraps. And when I talk about that, there's one more piece of scripture I, I like that reminds me of in Matthew 19, 23, 24, which states, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? I have to believe that answer, at least in part, is because in the kingdom of God, no one hoards all the wealth while everybody else suffers and starves. In the kingdom of God, no one puts themselves in a position of total domination over the entire community. In the kingdom of God, no one forces others to perform endless, back-breaking work just to feed their families or put a roof over their heads. That world's not the kingdom of God. That world is hell. Living paycheck to paycheck, scraping to get by, that's hell. Choosing between medicine and rent is hell. Working seven days a week for 12 hours a day for months on end is hell. Having your plant closed down and your family scattered across the country is hell. Being made to work during a pandemic and not knowing if you might get sick and die or spread the disease to your family is hell. And enough is enough. It's time to decide what kind of world we want to live in. And it's time to decide what we're willing to do to get it. So 